I am the face of the program and I'm a black woman. I'm visibly mm -hmm. black. Mm -hmm. And there I was out on the street with my birds talking about birds. And that's not something you see <laughs> all the time, right? But I feel like the um, me being the drive behind this initiative, the face of the initiative, um, that's a really significant thing. Welcome to the third season of the Hardwood Podcast, a program dedicated to sharing ideas, thoughts, and voices of respected professionals in environmental studies that care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They all have lived and work experiences to add to their outlook and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we here on the Hardwood Podcast are committed to sharing the voices of these individuals, as well as making space for others to ponder our dialogues. Greetings, everyone, wherever you are, whatever time it is where you're located, online right now with Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, the host of the Hartwell podcast, Hip Hop Forester, and assistant dean at the Yale School of the Environment. Very proud to be that. And today I have on the podcast uh, a scholar and professional, you know, who uh, um, works in New York City, okay, by way of Jamaica. And I am really blessed to be on the call with this individual because they're also a graduate of the great institution that I now work at. I unfortunately did not know this person until recently, but uh, I'm sure uh, that you're about to have a good time learning from them as I've already had in previous conversations. I'm speaking about none other than Georgia Severa Siemens, who is also the founding director of the Washington Square Park Eco Project. But I don't want to misrepresent Georgia, as Georgia has instructed me to to, to refer to Georgia, uh, but I want to uh, invite Georgia to share a little bit more um, about about herself. No problem. Um, so I have a slight correction. I should say um, co-founding director. Okay. And I can and I'll make that part of my uh, journey story. Okay. So um, I was born in Jamaica, the island. So I should say I was born on Jamaica. <laughs> ah, okay. And um, my family we immigrated to the U.S. in the late. 80s and um you know i i had been i was familiar with new york city at the time because my a lot of my dad's family lived there mm -hmm. so i visited my grandmother and aunt so i was really familiar i went to college uh at wesleyan university okay i completed my master's at the then yale school of forestry and environmental studies um, I'm still working on saying, on not saying FES. Uh, now the school is the Yale School of the Environment. Um, after Yale, I moved to Boston and worked for the City of Boston Parks Department as their urban forester. I was there for a few years and then moved west to Berkeley, California, which is where I completed my um, PhD. So I moved back to New York City in 2009. And at that point, I hadn't finished the PhD yet. I was in the writing year and I was also pregnant with my first child. I finished the PhD in 2010, uh, 
probably six months after uh, my son was born. So I felt really good about that. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought about, I applied for a postdoc, which I didn't get. And there's a, and there's always a story to everything. So I didn't get that postdoc. And then I thought about going into the job market. I was really interested in working for the New York City Parks Department because I had a really fantastic experience in Boston. But unfortunately, at the time, the city had a hiring freeze. So even though I talked to people and they were really excited, they couldn't hire me. So I sort of stepped into the full-time parent role. And I did do some sort of part-time, short-term project management work. Um, the way I came to Washington Square Park is that at the time I lived two blocks away from the park. And right now I live three blocks away from the park. So okay, yeah, I moved one block south. So um, because of my background in trees, particularly city trees, I was immediately attracted to the park. Um, it's got some big old trees and there's one famous tree in the Northwest corner, the English Elm. It's got all sorts of urban myths surrounding it. Um, it's a really beautiful park. I would say probably the park is at least two thirds covered with trees um, in terms of canopy. So it's 9.75 acres, but it's not a huge park, but you go in and apart from the arch and the fountain, you notice the trees, or at least I do. And I was looking around for information about the trees and couldn't find any that was easily accessible. So decided, oh, it'd be great to have an online map of the park's trees. So I reached out to a local blogger who had been writing about the park for a really long time. And I knew you could fundraise through IOB, which is a crowdsourcing platform that was co-founded by uh, Yale School of the Environment alums. So there was some nice synergy there. Right. So the blogger and I um, placed this project on the fundraising site and we raised money to hire a GIS developer to create this map for us. Okay. So that was the launch of Eco Projects, or as it was known then, Washington Square Park Ecology. Um, mm. But I wanted to take, I wanted to move this forward. I didn't want it to just to be at a tree map. I realized that there was so much going on in the park mm -hmm. that um, I could really grow it. And so um, I did. I, through noticing the trees, I started noticing the birds. I mean, I'd always had a slight interest in birds, but just spending a lot of time under the canopy, especially in fall and spring, you really notice like all the migratory birds that are coming through. And we see a pretty good number of them, even though it's a small park. So I reached out to a friend of mine who is a phenomenal birder mm -hmm. to join me in a bird survey project. So we kind of build, build it as a wildlife survey project, even though the majority of the wildlife we're recording <laughs> are birds. Mm -hmm. So we've seen, um, I saw a raccoon once. Um, I'm always hopeful to see bats, but we don't do the survey at the right time of day. Um, uh, okay. So we go out twice a month, uh, 
12 months of the year. And we started doing this in um, August or September of 2016. So it's been a few years now. And we share all our data uh, through a really short report that I write up every year with the parks department. Mm -hmm. Since it's a research project, we have a permit through the natural resources group. Um, the survey actually is part of a larger concept I had. Um, now I forget the year, it might've been 2015 to 2016. I had a visiting professorship at NYU, um, which is not as glamorous as it sounds because it came with no perks. <laughs> <laughs> Just being able to say, oh, I'm a visiting professor at NYU. Um, <laughs> But I was, I had an appointment in two different departments. One was at the business school okay. and um, one was through the program at Sue Steinhardt and their program for environmental conservation education. And what I was trying to accomplish that year was to create a program between the two schools Mm -hmm. where master's students in conservation education would design conservation programs specifically for the park that were place-based. And then the business school would design the sort of outreach platforms or yeah, the outreach that would go along with that since in the business school, there's a lot of expertise in um, sort of psychology and human mm -hmm. behavior and then mm -hmm. designing um, products to appeal to the psychology of folks. So I thought it would be a nice synergy there. Um, but what happened during that year is that my husband got an appointment at the Council of Economic Advisors in DC to work for the Obama administration. And that was really cool. So we all moved down mm -hmm. to Virginia. Okay. And um, when I came back, I, you know, I missed that year um, to do the work there, but I still had the research permit from Park. So I just went ahead with a smaller version of the bigger idea. Um, mm -hmm. And that didn't matter. I mean, what I've learned um, in this work is that each thing that I do is a stepping stone to the next. Mm -hmm. So with the wildlife survey, um, I realized or I thought to myself, it would be really, I'm having this experience of seeing the birds with my colleagues. And I know that there are other parks in the city where there are also these amazing birds. And wouldn't it be great to get people to have a hands-on experience with these birds? And um, so we started a specimen collection. So I have state and federal permits to salvage dead birds or to receive dead birds, for example, from the American Museum of Natural History and create specimens. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, you remove all the, the organs and other body parts that can decompose and then you replace those with cotton. So you're creating a bird that won't rot, um, a form that won't rot and people can hold it. The whole idea of the program we developed, Explore Birds, is for people to hold these birds. Um, it's sort of, they're not exactly posed, so it's not formal taxidermy. And I wish mm -hmm. I had one to show you 
on this call, even though your listeners won't see it. But if they Google bird specimens, they'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. Okay. And so the survey led to Explore Birds. I partnered with another organization to do these educational pop-ups throughout the city. Mm -hmm. And I mean, people would come up and they would see the birds. Some, a few people, I would say, you know, one to three percent would be um, outraged <laughs> that we had the specimens out, disgusted, or and then the, you know, the other ninety-seven percent were so excited, and it was also really interesting to see the reactions of adults versus children. Like children were so curious and had no barriers. They came right up and they wanted to touch and hold. Mm. Um, and a lot of people had stories, you know, New Yorkers like to talk and um, <laughs> a lot of people, for them, the birds sparked stories about their interactions and encounters with wild birds in the city. And from mm. that led us to our podcast, which is called Your Bird Story. Uh, we launched it in September, and the goal is to release one episode a month. So our first episode in September is titled Tanager. Uh, October, the episode is titled Cardinal. And this month, we're releasing an episode titled Sparkbird. But don't quote me on that. Just go to Your Bird Story. <laughs> Your Bird Story, um, Yeah. So you can um, listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, a bunch of other podcast services. Okay. Um, so that's why I describe it as a stepping stone because each project sort of opens the door for the next project because we're making links between all of these different ways that people experience nature mm -hmm. and then talk about nature. Um, and we wanna, we wanna capture that. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where I am at this point. That's kind of my, my journey. And there are some little splinters, you know, some off branches mm -hmm. <laughs> along the way, yes. but there's that, there's that through line. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I just want to let you know what well, I just signed up for it. Okay. Okay, great. So, great. Yeah, so thank, let thank me know you what you think. Know. I sure let me will. Know what you think? Yeah. And then I'm I'm moved by well, you know, I mean, I'm moved by what what you shared, but what you experienced. But as a person who, okay, so I'm an Eagle Scout, right? And then I and then I'm okay. also a forester, right? You know, but I did not really grow up. It's not that I dislike birds, I but I didn't grow up thinking about them, you know, being mm. part of. Well, you know, like not just the ecosystem, but also my life. Uh, but since uh, COVID has happened and I've been working remotely in North Carolina, um, you know, you know, now I have a garden in the back, in the backyard. I now have bird feeders around the house. And I've been seeing more than, I think, more than seven different species now. You know, I mean, everything from nuthatches to cardinals to blue jays to finches, mm, uh, grackles. And I don't know the calls yet, you know, but uh, and I know I'm missing about two more so I can get up to the seven. But I've been seeing them now. And so now I feed them like all the time, like I'm putting the stuff out to feed. And if I don't see them, I feel weird. 
If I if I yeah. if I don't hear them, you know, but I but I, I did I didn't I didn't think like that, you know, to be honest, until you know, until 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 recently, you know, but I've cared about the other big, you know, other big animals like bear, wolf, uh, those, you know, but not showing the respect, I think, you know, to the small ones. And now I can admit, I feel funny if I don't see, if I don't see them. <laughs> and when I'm in Connecticut, you know, in my place in Connecticut, so it's different, right? I'm kind of with trees here, it's different in Connecticut. So then I'm just kind of looking mm-hmm. at the window going, I hope I see one today, you know, and it's just different. <laughs> You know, but now like it's a part of I, I want to see it. You know, I, I want to see a yeah. bird. I want to help. I want to I want to feed. I want to uh, I, I hope the bird feels safe, you know, uh, at least around my house in my backyard. Like, no, you don't have to go anywhere. I'm not going to do anything to you. But I can say that it's changed like that for me. So it's it's uh, and that's why I'm going to listen, you know, because I'm, lo- I'm always looking forward to learning new things about birds. And I'm starting to get into it. And who would have thought in my 40s that I would do this? So oh. I appreciate you like sharing that with me. I'll have to interview you, Thomas. So I would love, well, so, mm-hmm. you know, the, when you listen to the podcast, you'll realize, so our goal is not to give um, space to the ornithologist or the avian mm-hmm. researcher. We really want to serve as a platform for everyday people to talk about their experiences with birds. So, um, so that's the focus. We are, you know, and people know a lot more about birds than they realize, especially if they've been observing them for a while. They mm-hmm, might, mm-hmm. they might not necessarily use those technical terms you're going to find in a reference book. Mm-hmm. But um, people know what they're talking about. <laughs> mm. People have knowledge through their observations. And I have to say, when you're talking to someone who's quote unquote new to something, mm-hmm. the way that you're going to engage them is through everyday talk, not through mm-hmm. some like technical speak that you would find in like a college um, textbook. You know, that's not how you bring somebody into an experience or a field. So um, I think people don't give themselves as much credit as they should about what they know, especially when they're first starting out or they're maybe comparing themselves to some sort of expert, some abstract expert. Um, Yeah. So we're all about hearing about the everyday person's experience I love that (laughs) okay yeah so you should you should come on okay I'd be happy to I'll I'll listen today and tomorrow traveling but I definitely I'd be happy to you know well actually what you said is a great segue to the second thing but it's really to I think kind of describe what like Hartwood you know is I you know even though we're using a term that describes the most decaying part of a tree or someone say the dead part of the tree we're really mm. using it as a play on words to deal more so with the intersection of how people engage whether it's emotionally professionally mm. vocationally or with the outdoors you know or with the environment and we really kind of leave the environment uh to be described more so to the person we're talking to because people come from different environments and it means something different to them but mm. we really focus on diversity equity and inclusion you know and how do people experience that or bring that into the field? You know, how does it impact them doing doing what it is, you know, uh, that, that they do? And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I, you, you, you gave us the path to working 
or getting into working, I guess, in people plant, you know, um, people plant relationships or where you're mm. working to teach people about that. But could you tell me how, could, could you describe your path? If you have done this, I don't want to assume this, where you've maybe addressed or dealt with diversity issues, getting into, you know, like where you are now, working with people, plant relationships, teaching people, you know, even how you maybe came from Jamaica to New York, you know, before going to, you know, Virginia or going to Berkeley and then going to Virginia, you know, just have you, you know, encountered any, you know, just any challenges that some would be, you know, diverse in, in you know, like from your either professional experience or even in your field? Let's see. Um, so the first of the two anecdotes and yes. They're relatively short. Um, and the first one I've shared publicly um, in a piece of writing I put up on Medium. It was like a couple of sentences. Um, and I just want to preface it all by <laughs> saying I really love Boston and I enjoyed my um, my work with the city of Boston. Um, okay. It was a really good place to work. And, mm -hmm. but the anecdote is about something that happened while I was living and working in Boston. So I was the urban forester for the city. There was also an arborist, but he was based at the yard. And, you know, they mostly did a lot of the crew work. So tree removals, tree prunings, things like that. The urban mm -hmm. forester was in the office in a different building. Um, okay. I don't know why they had the two parts of the parks department separate, but that's not unusual, I think, in municipal parks departments or municipal forestry. Um, okay. So my role was to manage the city's street tree planting program. And we, you know, it's two seasons, spring and fall. Um, it was primarily street trees, but um, the contractors also worked in parks, and um, I was pretty young when I started this job. I think I was in my mid twenties. It's sort of a big deal to manage, like a you know, a city's um, tree planting contract. And I remember being on site with a contractor and pointing out something to him that uh, he needed to do because A, uh, it was the right thing to do for the tree <laughs> and B, it was in the contract. And his response to me, and I don't remember the exact words, but he basically said, well, your predecessor didn't have a problem with this. And so my predecessor was a white man. And, you know, I think at the time I just thought, oh, it must be because I'm a woman and I'm young. And yes, that's part of it. But I think, you know, I was also like a young black woman. And, um, you know, there were sort of all of these little things, these little things that happened where it was sort of always questioning what I was saying. And at, mm. <clears throat> and at some point I let him know that um, if he wanted to be paid, he would need to do the things in the contract that he signed because 
in the end, it would come down, like any issues would come onto me since I would sign off on his work and I couldn't sign off on work that um, he didn't do according to the contract he signed. Um, so that was the first one. I mean, and I was trying to think like I was um, in the, uh, there was a, a bunch of us who were hired at once. There was another woman of color um, and I'm trying to think like who had sort of a management role. Um, so that was kind of my first professional um, dealing with the whole thing around diversity and equity and inclusion. Though at the time, this was in the you know two, early 2000s, no one was having a conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. People were talking about diversity, but I, even then, I think diversity had kind of a different meaning than it does now. Um, the second anecdote, um, this happened at Berkeley, and um, <clears throat> I was being asked about my research methods, and the specific question was around how I would get to know my research site or a potential okay. research site. And okay. the way I began answering the question I knew was not the answer the asker was expecting based on that person's facial expression. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at the other people <laughs> around the asker and I was looking in particular at this one um, at a woman and um, she had a much more supportive look on her face. So I answered in the way I had started to answer, but then I also sort of qualified the answer in a, <clears throat> a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when I reflect on that experience, um, I think what was happening there is, you know, at the time, and I think even now, I'm a young black, well, I was young then, but I'm a black woman and, um, you know, going into an unknown neighborhood, mm -hmm. like I'm not just gonna go into a place I don't know without doing some research about that place. Right. Um, and, you know, there's in urban planning and landscape architecture and allied fields, because I was in, um, my program was landscape architecture and environmental planning. Uh, mm -hmm. There is this, figure in those fields called the flaneur. It's this French man, a white Frenchman, who in the 19th century would just walk around the city and experience the city. And that's how this individual observed and came to know the city. And um, that's really great for that kind of person. <laughs> Um, but, you know, that identity has a lot of privileges that other identities do not. Right. And um, there was no way that I was ever going to just roll up into an unknown 
potential research site without at least doing some background work, without at least having a map so I could know how to move through that space. And um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, and mm -hmm. the question was asked by a, a white man. And mm -hmm. I think for, you know, someone of his generation or just someone of his identity, the idea that you could just move through space without feeling threatened, it may be taken for granted. And, um, you know, this, um, this has been <laughs> the subject of many, many, many conversations, many mm -hmm. deaths, many mm -hmm. threats this year. I mean, well, not just this year, but for, you know, like centuries. <laughs> oh, yes. But this, but this year, it I think has really, um, it's hard for the people who said, well, I don't see that to keep saying that because of mm -hmm. some of the things that have happened this year. Of course, there are people mm -hmm. who will keep saying, I don't see that. And mm -hmm. I don't really know how to engage with those individuals. But, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, not everyone can just be in space like, oh, without sort of looking over their shoulder. And this is something um, I was listening to Drew Lanham, mm -hmm. who is a, yes, mm -hmm. wildlife biologist, mm -hmm. exceptional writer, mm -hmm. uh, long form and poetry. And he talked about, you know, being out doing his field work, but always having one eye on keeping himself physically safe. And how can mm -hmm. you really A, do your work mm -hmm. or even B, have pleasure outside when you're sort of constantly thinking about, am I safe? Um, and so, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I didn't have this language to think about or interpret um, situations that were happening where I was involved and now I do. And mm -hmm. it's not like a, it's not a kind of revisionist history that I'm engaging in. <laughs> um, I'm just now able to better interpret that experience. I mean, those experiences okay. made okay. me uncomfortable and I okay. did talk about them at the time, but now I'm able to use contemporary language to talk about those experiences. Mm -hmm. I, um, it doesn't change what happened mm -hmm. in the experience. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so those are two anecdotes I would share, sort of like challenges. But again, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are, I don't want to say they're sort of intellectual challenges, but none of them mm -hmm. put my body, my physical body in danger. Um, none of them necessarily threatened or um, highly jeopardized my livelihood. And mm. I think that's kind of what 
people we need to be thinking about when there's this conversation about DEI is um, these decisions that are being made where folks aren't considering diversity, equity, and inclusion have real mm -hmm. impacts on people's actual like persons, like their actual bodies. True. Um, and mm -hmm. it's not an intellectual exercise or a nice to have thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a thing of consequence. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh no! This no no. This this, this all make this. I'm, I'm in full alignment with this. This leads to my next question. Then, but I want to say it this way, because way that you describe diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you for even doing like the you know by distinguishing. You know, saying you know something that was happening was more intellectual. I'm in this space. My body was not in danger. You know, but you know, or I should say, and you were still experiencing something that was uncomfortable, something that you felt and knew that wasn't either right or wasn't something that, you know, felt good to be going through at the time. You know, mm -hmm. when I think about the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I think about them in professional settings, one word really comes to mind for me, and that's the word fairness, okay? It, it mm -hmm. seems like we're really trying to institute fairness or being fair in spaces where, at least in my opinion, fairness may not be what was the lens when the organization was created. Maybe mm -hmm. fairness wasn't the lens when the different positions or the hierarchy was created. And you fast forward all of this time now, and we're still trying to make everything quote unquote right or fair. You know, now that's just my personal opinion about what DEI, I'm, I'm just saying in just plain essence. I mean, I know mm -hmm. diversity means one thing, equity means another thing, inclusion means another thing. But I'm saying when I put them all together, and see what it is we're trying to do. It seems mm -hmm. like fairness is what we're trying to institute or what we're trying to establish. What I'd like to ask you uh, is, would you mind sharing maybe your philosophy or understanding of what DEI is, you know, and even how that kind of relates to, let's say the environmental or environmental related fields, mm -hmm. you know? So if you could just share, like say your, your understanding or your philosophy and then just as it relates in particular to like say the environmental fields or to environmental related disciplines? Yeah, um, and that's a really good question. And to be honest, I don't know if I have a philosophy mm -hmm. about diversity, equity and, and inclusion in part um, because it. <laughs> I just find it frustrating that this is a conversation, like this is a, a little box that needs to be in institutions, right? Like I just, it's like, I just can't understand why, I mean, you're using the word fairness, but why people, institutions, uh, people in power can't treat and I'm not saying treat everyone equally because that mm -hmm. doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, there's mm -hmm. that poster mm -hmm. of the like people behind the fence and you get oh, yeah, everyone the, the same, yep. mm -hmm. right? The same height of like box, but mm -hmm. the shorter people still can't see over the fence. You got to give right. them the resources, which is mm -hmm. the taller box because they're starting out with less. And, mm -hmm. um, 
I guess maybe that is my philosophy is that different people, different communities need different resources. Um, mm. And in order to get to their, to fulfill their potential. Mm -hmm. And just because you're giving an individual <laughs> more resources right now, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean the other person is getting, is somehow losing out. You know, this like tension between um, giving people their rights versus people with lots of power and privilege being afraid of giving up some of that as if it's like, as if that's a right. That's not a right, that's kind of a stolen thing. And mm -hmm. um, we don't talk about this or we haven't been talking about this in that, way um you know it's only and maybe folks in the indigenous movement have been using the language around stolen um but i think in the sort of the dei conversation um it doesn't i don't know it doesn't sort of problematize or make clear how we got to this place where we need to have DEI as part of the way we do business. Um, yeah. Um, and I feel like whatever that DEI actually means different things to different people and different institutions. Like people can say DEI and it's a box they check, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it becomes institutional or embedded or that it influences every single decision that's made in that institution. It's something mm -hmm. that becomes this siloed. And I was actually in a conversation <clears throat> recently where I um, said that I'm concerned about um, an environmental justice specialization in an mm -hmm. academic setting because I fear that it'll become a siloed thing and mm -hmm. not then something that becomes integrated into how that academic institution functions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think mm -hmm. this is kind mm -hmm. of maybe the crux of it. Mm -hmm. You have it and it's good and you can show your face or say face that you have this program, but you don't, there's no accountability for integrating it into every single thing that you do. You only mm -hmm. as an institution need to have it there and to show that you have it, but then there's no one saying, well, how does the, how do these three principles guide everything that you do? How do they guide hiring at all levels? How do they uh, guide promotion? You know, it's just, promotion. it just is, it's such a separate thing. It becomes a bucket, a silo, a checkbox. 
Mm -hmm. And you're dealing with an issue where for a long time, and I remember even now you'll read articles where people talk about diversity and really they mean, oh, this space is more diverse because it has more white women, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's not diverse because, you know, they'll say, oh, women and people of color. And it's like, well, (laughs) people of color, (laughs) women too. What you mean to say is white women and people of color. But we know that diversity means much more than that. Um, and right. there's so much diversity. There's, there's so many ways to that identities overlap that um, I'm not even sure if there's an institution that's doing the diversity piece well. They have their little, you know, five that they can check off. But like mm-hmm. the breadth mm-hmm. of diversity is so much. But I don't think right. there's any institution that's doing that well. And then mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. equality versus equity piece. Um, and then it seems like the inclusion piece is the most recent, right? Where it's not just right. like being able to sit around that, you know, proverbial table mm-hmm. or being able to speak at that table, but then being able to make the decisions at that table. And mm-hmm. I don't know that seems also like something that not many institutions are doing well. Um, I don't know if that's the end game, but again, Mm -hmm. I think having it as DEI means you can do just a little bit (laughs) of everything or a lot in one of the categories and not so much in the others. And you still get to say, I'm doing DEI. Um, Mm. And this happens with all, I think, of these um, projects where people are really trying to demand their rightful rights, right? Someone develops a strategy for that and it gets like, I don't want to say corrupted, but it doesn't live up to the promise of the original uh, concept. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. there's that accountability piece that's often missing. And the thing that's frustrating is that the people who are, have been historically excluded, and this is a term I'm seeing used recently, Mm -hmm. historically excluded, historically marginalized, have to do the work of keeping those other people accountable those people are not keeping themselves accountable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're sort of the oppressed, they have to do this like double or triple labor. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very frustrating. It's even more than frustrating. It's maddening. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why I don't (laughs) have a (laughs) philosophy of DEI. Um, I want to say also that I um, was in a conversation with someone else. We're part of this group called BIPOC Hort, which is a group for horticultural and allied um, industries, and it's Black, Indigenous, and people of color horticulture. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about this kind of work that needs to happen, and she is doing much more of the work like I'm not really doing any work. She's actually, you know, serving on panels and talking to institutions about this DEI work. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said, but, you know, people don't want to do the work. Like, there are all of these panels, you know, brown and black <laughs> people get invited to help these mainstream institutions to do better. But how many panels can be hosted? People just need to do the work. I feel like all the information mm-hmm. is already out there. It's out there. There are books, there are webinars. Mm-hmm. You've already met with the consultants. There is like no magic pill. You just have to sweat. You have to do mm. the work. Um, mm. Yeah, and you need, and people and mainstream organizations need to stop expecting that, you know, black and brown people are gonna always be there to help them to do the work. I don't know. It's, um, it's like being it's like the rock in the hard place because you know if you Mm -hmm. don't do the work the other party might slack off a little bit Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) but mm. you're like i'm so tired of doing the work Mm -hmm. um so then you know people talk about just building their own table like forget about that other table. We'll just build our yeah. own table. Build our system. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I don't know. I don't know. No, no. It's, it's no, hard. I, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, hard. I mean, well, I, but I mean, I appreciate you explaining that because I think that that's the. You know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we've had a couple of other, you know, folks on the podcast, um, you know, and they've been talking about, you know, like challenges as it relates to diversity. And uh, and I'll be honest, this I mean, this perspective, we've heard pieces of it in the other interviews, but we haven't heard it, you know, articulated this clearly like like uh, like this. And, and it is clear, you know, that when you are a part of at least, you know, to me, you know, like there was no jumble. There was no bouncing around. I understand everything you said. When you are in a certain position, I think whether we, let's say ethnically or socially, you know, you um, and, and I'm putting myself there, you know, because I'm I'm in a similar place. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not from the Great Island of Jamaica, but I'm different from Turtle Island here, as we call the U.S. You know, yeah. And knowing uh, and even using that reference, right? That's not a reference of the U.S. That's a reference of indigenous people who were here before Europeans came, came over and before they brought, you know, people, you know, that, 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 that look like you and I here. And, uh, and just knowing like the different narratives that were taught that how this country was won or taken, you know, like Christopher Columbus discovered something, which he didn't discover mm. anything, you know, matter of fact, Christopher Columbus never even touched foot on this land. Okay. Mm. But Christopher Columbus conquest led almost to the extension of the Taino people which are where people from Dominica, Cuba, you know, as well as Puerto Rico come from. And then of course the mix in that is the African diaspora because then they mix mm-hmm. with us, right? And then, and then and then we see, you know, how we all look. And just fast forward hundreds of years or, or we can even just say decades, you know, when you have false narratives that people have been brought up with, I think it continues to justify what people have done for a long time. And then when this other truth comes in or this other truth comes through, which I think is what you're talking about, you know, and that's the, and to me, that's the part that leads to the agitation. But when you actually get the truth <laughs> of what actually happened, and then you say you want to do something different, you know, how can people think that they can just bring someone into an organization that, let's say it was founded on principles that make inequity okay, 
you know, mm-hmm. and then make mistreating people okay. And then you bring people into this organization to help the organization and the culture of the place is still entrenched in these oppressive behaviors or these oppressive thought processes. Then people like you and me, if you ask us like, as I did you, I think it's gonna be somewhat, t- sometimes hard to hear someone give a positive answer or to mm. give an answer that's comfortable to hear because you're living an experience that, let, let's be clear about this, right? We experience things that a lot of other people don't even want to experience. So if they wouldn't even want to experience it, I don't even understand how they will, will think that they would have a positive answer to a question mm. like that. Like you wouldn't even want to go through this. So why should I make you feel comfortable in my answer you know, to you and say something nice when it's something that's tough that we're actually experiencing? And I just appreciate everything that you said because, mm the way that you described it, in my opinion, justifies why it's also difficult, right? You know, it's like, hey, you know, have you had any DEI challenges? Yeah, and if your life has been put on the line or your job has been put on the line, why would I speak about that comfortably? Or if even my scholarship has been questioned, my personhood has been questioned, you know? So, no, I mean, I appreciate everything uh, that, that, that you just said. And I, and I hope that as the listeners are listening, if you have not had this experience, what I always encourage people to do is don't question it in the sense of challenge it. Question it by being curious and go deeper. Like maybe, you know, you know question, well, wow, why would, you know, Georgia have, have that experience? Not because of Georgia, but the person who treated Georgia mm. that way, you know. Mm. So, you know, so I, I, I just want to say that just to, I don't want to go too deep because then we'll start having church. I'm just saying. I appreciate everything that you just said. And I hear yeah. everything that you said, you know, and I have a similar, if, if not the same experience, just in different environments, maybe a different time, a different place, a different state, you know, so uh, I, I I can identify with that. So then with that, I'd like to ask you this, and and I just had just like two more questions and then we'll, you mm-hmm. know, like wrap it up because you really have given such rich answers. How then, okay, so you know what you've experienced. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this then, how, I'm, I'm going to try to put two questions in one. How does DEI influence how you work? And then, you know, and, and then if it does influence how you work, can you give some insight on how DEI could improve our, our disciplines, our environmentally related disciplines, whether we're talking mm-hmm. about birding, forestry, environmental science, dealing with climate change, you know, so just, you know, just how it influences you. And then how could this DEI then improve our disciplines? That's the question. Okay. Um, So my current work with Washington Square Park, I would say, you know, it's a two woman outfit. (laughs) Okay. Much of the work, and I'm just looking at my matrix up on my wall here, much of the work we're doing is based, or I would say the longer, the long-standing projects are based in the park. And so for okay. folks who are not familiar with Washington Square Park, it's in Greenwich Village in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I have some stats, okay? Okay. The neighborhood is 80% white. The average household income is 192000 The median household income is 119000 um, 9% of Greenwich Village and its neighbor to the South Soho live in mm-hmm. poverty compared to 14% in Manhattan and 20% in the, the entire city. 
Mm. About 4% of residents are unemployed, and these are based on 2018 data I got from the internet compared to 7% in Manhattan and 9% in the city. Mm. The rent burden, so you know you're only supposed to pay 30% of your income in rent, and that's known. So when you have difficulty paying rent, it's the rent burden. So the rent burden in um, Greenwich Village is 38%. In Manhattan, it's 45%, and in the city, as the citywide, is 51%. So this is mm. a, you know, an affluent neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, the park, the park where I work, um, and I'm not working for the parks department. This is an independent organization. It's mm -hmm. it's in a wealthy neighborhood. So okay. for me, on kind of a daily basis, I would say that my work, the DEI part. Mm -hmm. is kind of intellectual because just because of the neighborhood in which the park sits and the folks who come or in the pre-COVID time, I should say, <laughs> mm -hmm. the most of the folks who come on the walks and things mm -hmm. like this, um, volunteers for some of our, like our phenology project, which started last year, mm -hmm. um, you know, not necessarily a visibly diverse group. Let's put it that way. Okay, not visibly diverse. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, when I, in the before time, <laughs> uh, I worked a lot, um, I collaborated a lot with Street Lab, which is an organization based here in New York City, and they do these pop-up learning environments. So they have a draw cart, a read cart, they have an explore cart, which is um, when, so my explore birds program would go with their explore cart. And part of their okay. mission is to bring their learning environments to underserved communities. And okay. so I, when I was doing that before the pandemic, I would say then that my work was reaching a much more diverse, audience um okay. so we weren't checking the inclusivity box because the participants were not involved in any decision making <laughs> mm -hmm. um so that i would then say the program itself was maybe you know definitely checking a diversity box um mm -hmm. because of the neighborhoods some of the neighborhoods that we were in um you know you would see black and brown people and not sort of token numbers, but you know, black and brown neighborhoods, um, diverse neighborhoods. And the equity piece, um, I'm not, so what I would say there is, um, and maybe this is more a representation piece and not okay. necessarily equity, um, okay. is that, I am the face of the program and I'm a black woman. I'm visibly black. And there I was out on the street with my birds talking about birds. And that's not something you see <laughs> all the time, right? No, it's not. Nope. So <laughs> there's not an R in DEI. And I learned last week that someone 
someone I was on a call with, she uses the term Jedi, justice, equity, justice, diversity, equity, and diversity, inclusion. Yep. I don't know, maybe there could be dairy, diversity, equity, representation, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but I feel like the um, me being the drive behind this initiative, the face of the initiative, um, okay. that's a really significant thing um, mm -hmm, to have a black mm -hmm. woman in this space and mm -hmm. in, in like, and it's public facing too. Um, and I must say, especially with kids of color, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they come up and it's like such an awesome interaction that we have and really just all the kids, I think it just is, it's really nice. I do have to say, though, <laughs> that, um, you know, the adults, they have lots of questions. But the type of person who always asks the disbelieving question okay. is always the white guy. You know, there's always like there are always people who will ask the challenging question. Mm -hmm. like, but not like challenging as like, oh, it's really thoughtful or provocative. Challenging mm -hmm. as in, I think I'm going to ask you this question to show you that I know more than you. And I'm thinking of a specific thing that happened. And I'm laughing because, um, well, there are probably many emotions that are eliciting the laughter from me. But mm. um it was about the actual making of the specimen. Like this person questioned, um, he asked me how the specimen was made and I told him, and then he disagreed with me. And then I had to say, but no, I made this. So I'm telling you how this was made. Um, Anyway, so I think it's, you know, that's just to say that having me there talking with the public about the fact that I'm involved with this work at multiple levels. I am not just someone who was hired to stand here to like give you a few facts. And I'm not saying and I'm, I'm an expert birder. I really started birding in 2016. Mm. And as, as I was saying to some friends this weekend, I'm gonna start this series called Bird Confessions because okay. I'm kind of a slow to learn birder. And it took me this fall to figure out the difference. Now I can look at a ruby crown kinglet and a golden crown kinglet. And I know mm -hmm. the difference between them like that. Also uh. the house finch, the female house finch and the female purple finch this fall, Nailed it. Yeah. I can tell the difference between those. And so I'm not out there saying I'm like, I don't know who's a famous birder, like Jason Ward or Jeffrey Ward or Drew Lanham or Deja Perkins or Karina Newsom or, you know, but, you know, I know some things. And I know about the process of making the birds that I make that I definitely own. <laughs> So it was really just, you know, if it had been something sort of factual, 
I could have been like, oh, well, maybe I forgot or like whatever, if, you know, I just didn't know. And, but uh-uh, not when I did this thing. There's no way you can come up there and say what you're telling me is wrong because mm. I know I'm not wrong because I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's all, well, so this is my work. And, of course, like, I can't laugh in this person's face or be kind of agitated or militant. I could just only nicely say, actually, mm. I made this and this is my process. And um, and there you have it. Um, so that's kind of the piece. Um, and I just say, I personally and my colleague who I would describe as an accomplice, not simply an ally, she's a white woman. Mm -hmm. I would describe her as, as an accomplice. Um, you know, I personally want to expand the work that we're doing beyond Washington Square Park and beyond mm -hmm. neighborhoods of its complexion. Mm -hmm. And um, there's an idea, I pitched it to an organization maybe a year ago. Neither of us had the kind of people or financial resources to tackle it. I mean, this year nothing's happening. So hopefully next year um, we can get it going. And the original idea was to set up bird. And even though I'm talking a lot about birds, I also really love trees. <laughs> um, but bird residencies in parks and neighborhoods where um, they're sort of ignored. So they're underbirded because you know, a lot of the birding that happens in fall and spring happens in like the big hotspot parks. But Smart. based on my experience in Washington Square Park, I know that small parks support birds. And I know that there are people, I know that there are New Yorkers out there who are diverse New Yorkers who are having birdie experiences. And I want to bring these two together somehow. And um, that means bringing myself and the initiative like out and figuring out um, a thoughtful and meaning way, a meaningful way to do that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just thinking back to my experiences at URI, like you don't, and for your listeners, that's the Urban Resources Initiative that's based in New Haven. It's a part of um, the Yale School of the Environment. You know, you don't just like helicopter yourself into a neighborhood and say, hey, I've got this great idea and come be a part of my great idea. Uh, no, so I don't want to do that. I know there's interest. I know that there's this issue. And then I need to figure out if there are organizations and, by, and I'm using the word organization loosely. I'm not talking about like a 501c3, whatever groups of people mm -hmm. and individuals who has a similar interest who would mm -hmm. want to collaborate on this project. And not just in mm -hmm. one neighborhood, but in as many neighborhoods as we have the capacity to do. So that's kind of that's a, cool. that's one of our future projects. Um, okay. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Oh, mm -hmm. and then the second part of your question was how DEI in our field, 
Um, so the thing that comes to mind is funding. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, funding. And to maybe to expand on that a little bit. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I read a piece that talked about the disparity between um, main, the funding mainstream environmental organizations get and mm-hmm. organizations and institutions. So it could be a nonprofit, it could okay. be a university, whatever, versus mm-hmm. what smaller, sometimes newer, sometimes people of color-led grassroots organizations get in terms of funding. It's a mm-hmm. huge difference. Right, this like concept of the track record, which I think sidelines and just derails a lot of really good place-based work. And when we're mm-hmm. talking about DEI or JEDI or any combinations of those things, um, and I'm not saying the global doesn't matter, but I'm a very local focused person mm-hmm. and this kind of local knowledge and local expertise, I think is so critical to dealing with environmental problems. Mm-hmm. And one of the, just one of the pathways or strategies for um, rec- acknowledging, recognizing the importance of DEI is by putting your money <laughs> where your mouth is, as they say. Tell the truth. Um, Let them know. And it's not just about the money. And this came up in the conversation that you and I were a part of in August, is that being willing not being forced, mm-hmm. but being willing to relinquish your expertise, your power, so that the local can be the lead, the expert, the public mm-hmm. face. You don't, mm-hmm. um, and just being okay with not being up in front, like not having your name, you know, just mm-hmm. stepping stepping aside. You don't need to, this idea that you need to own all aspects of the, the field that you're a part of. Mm. It, it just doesn't leave room for mm-hmm. this sort of DEI thing that you say you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You kind mm-hmm. of want to take credit for everything, including... Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, and I think the DEI, a big part of that is just being able to say, okay, I, you know, mm-hmm. this is not my place. This is not mm. my place. This is someone else's place. They mm. know this place. They know the people. They know how it works. They have a lived experience, a deeper understanding. And if they need me, for specific things, I'm there to give it to them, but I don't need to be, you know, the person out front. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm just saying this is just one one piece of, you know, how DEI could be better 
integrated into environment writ large. Um, and it's not, you know, I think sort of DEI maybe tends to get lumped into environmental justice work. <clears throat> and environmental justice work is still really critical. Um, mm -hmm. And is, I mean, when you think of like the big environmental problems, you can't really separate the two. But I also think that local communities have more to say than just um, talking about the things that are bad in their communities. I think local mm -hmm. communities have a lot to say about the things that are working well in their communities, like the solutions that they have designed for their communities that these mm -hmm. historically excluded communities have lessons to teach. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. These mainstream organizations. I mean, that's, one of the reasons why you want DEI or diversity, like diversity of perspective, diversity of knowing how to get stuff done. Um, I, yeah, so I'll leave it there. No, no, you. Well, <laughs> I'll leave it there. I'm, I mean, you. Well, see, that's the. I mean, you, you've answered. I, I just, you know, I, for everyone who's listening to to who who listens to this episode what I'm hoping that they'll be able to take from this is everything you said, but how to apply it. See, in my opinion, what you talked about wasn't just a symbolic or the philosophy or the definition. You talked about how to apply it, you know, mm -hmm. how to either get out of the way or how to put your money where your mouth is so that people can see what it is that you say you value instead of just hear it, how to get out of the way, because maybe it's possible your presence could be the problem. Not you, I'm just saying, you know, other yeah. people. maybe your presence, you know, like could be the problem. Maybe it's the fact that you haven't shared with other people. And even though you want to hold on to it, maybe you holding on to it is part of the problem too. Mm. And I think that what you just shared is something that I think a lot of people feel, but they don't want to say. I think mm. that what you shared is something that a lot of people see, but they don't want to act like they have seen it, you know? And I really appreciate you for being so open. And don't get me wrong, in my opinion, you didn't badmouth or say anything bad. Word, but, you know, <laughs> I didn't you know, so I, any names. I didn't see, exactly, any exactly. Names. So you didn't do that. But what you did was you owned your experience. And it's an experience that I also have. So I also, also want to say that I, like, I'll admit I completely agree with everything that you said. Not that you need me to validate it. But I really want people to understand that everything that was shared on this call, two people agree with it. And it's the two people who are talking. And so uh, I appreciate having you here uh, because your perspective aligns with my values and it aligns with the way that I see things. And it also helps me understand more of why this is, you know, why, why this is challenging. We're not just talking mm -hmm. about one group of people. We're not just talking about one action. We're not just talking about one company. We're talking about a culture. We're talking about a culture mm -hmm. that has permeated really across the planet. And it's a culture that has led to really all of us doing something as far as the environment goes to that we probably can improve. And then there are mm. those who have been brushed aside. We probably, we need to pour them out. Like we need to invite those who are in the center, invite them to be in the margins and the people, those who are in the margin, invite them to the center. 
And it's like mm. you said, people in these neighborhoods, they have more to share than just the bad things. Maybe they don't even need to talk about the bad things. They have solutions to share. So, you know, Georgia, when you said Georgia, you know, I know, you know, but there's a reason why she got a doctorate, y'all. Just wanted to let y'all know that, uh, you know, people who have multiple forms of education definitely have multiple ways of speaking about things. And she, and she did it humbly. So she still said Georgia. So that that is fine. I want to honor what Georgia has said to call her. But I want to thank you, though, you know, Doc, I want to thank you, you know, for bringing your scholarship to this podcast, bringing your experience to this podcast, and also your patience as the technology was trying to mess with us. I yeah. do think that this is a foreshadow of what is coming in the future of more people using their voice mm. and more people sharing their experience. And that's what I hope people, that's one of the main things I hope people get from this is here you have a scholar, a person in the community, you know, from, you know, just with an amazing background, but using your work to help the community and to help the planet. And I just hope that people will do the same who listen to this episode. Uh, yeah. there, and any final words, you know, that, that you, you know, we'll close it out. Just want to ask you got any a final statement you want to leave us with? Really get to know your local ecology. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of power in getting to know the place where you live. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to find an environmental problem in a distant place or Mm -hmm. environmental happiness in a distant place. You can find both things where Mm. you live. And um, yeah, I'm a a localist. I'm not parochial, but I do believe Mm -hmm. there's something powerful about developing intimate knowledge about where you live and just, I mean, it not only benefits you as a person it benefits Mm -hmm. your community and it benefits the non-human community right Mm -hmm. I mean Mm -hmm. we're living Mm -hmm. amongst not just other humans but plant and animal creatures and Mm -hmm. you know we should really be focusing on Mm -hmm. on where we live if everyone focused on where they live Mm -hmm. you're suddenly talking about the world yeah. Mm. <laughs> you were talking about the word if everyone focuses on what it. Oh, please, everyone, take that and plug that away. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that. Okay. Talk <laughs> about where you live. You're actually talking about the word. You, I really, I, I love that because that makes me, because it reminds me of something. I had an idea last year about people who have like a lot of monetary wealth. Uh, I'll, I'll say mm-hmm. this, and then I, I, and then we, we, we can close. I, I look at money as it's the least valuable thing because it's what money pays for that's the most valuable thing right so we use money Mm. to pay for land we use money to pay for food we use money to pay for houses or to buy a service but the service is what's mostly valuable not the money and i feel like the money aspect of a lot of what we have now is what's really i think uh perverted you know how we do Mm. things together the same way money you know like does you know like as you said there are people who have a lot of wealth who, in my opinion, make the sad mistake of thinking I got to go across the world to get away. I got to go across, I got to bring something from across the world to me for me mm. to show my wealth. And in my opinion, those people are thieves. And that, and that that's mm. my opinion because you're taking from somewhere else and you could have just left it there. You didn't, I don't need to bring something from Africa over here. I don't need to bring something from Europe over here. It can stay right where it's at and it can be respected mm-hmm. right where it's at. If I do exactly what you said, you know, 
embrace the challenge and things where I live, but really fall in love with where I, I actually locally yeah. live. Be, be locally engaged, locally invested, and locally active. So I'm, 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 I'm taking from that, and I'm. It's, it's gonna, it's making me already think about how I can do things better and tighter. And I just hope people all listen to this. And I'm in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say it like this. People, if what I just said about if you go somewhere and, and I said, and, and if I said that's like a, being a thief and then if what I said convicted you, don't avoid what I said, think about it. Don't avoid right. what, what, don't avoid what Georgia said. Don't, don't, don't let something hit you and then just like run away. No, think about what she said because I mean, it's definitely impacted me. Now it's gonna impact me listening to it later. And maybe this will help us be better people and treat our planet better. But Doc, I just want to yeah. thank you for your time today and sharing You're your welcome. brilliance because that's what you shared and your time with me. And uh, of course, we're going to have to do this again. Okay. So yeah. I'm sure Yale wouldn't have it any other way. So. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun and insightful. So thanks for inviting me on, Thomas. Okay. All right. Well, for everyone listening, this is Georgia Severa Siemens. You can uh, look, look her up, uh, you know, co leading. Okay, work right there in New York City. We want to, you know, thank you know, like thank you for that. And uh, everyone, remember, you can check out other uh, other episodes. Uh, every episode is valuable because every person is valuable. Every person is brilliant because they know something and they have something to teach and share. Every teacher's a student. Every student's a teacher. So I think I benefit more than they do because I get to learn every episode. So thank you all for listening and get ready to enjoy the next one. You all take care. The Hardwood Podcast is a production of the Yale School of the Environment in New Haven, Connecticut. Our producer is Nadine Damien, a joint degree master's student between the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, pursuing degrees in environmental management and international and development economics. I am Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, and we'll see you next time.